The views and opinions expressed by today's guest do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or the show's producer, Whatever It Takes Consulting, Incorporated. You're listening to Help Jamise Banks Change the World, a podcast produced by Whatever It Takes Consulting, Incorporated. Welcome to another episode of Help Jamise Banks Change the World. I'm Jamise Banks, and today's episode is going to be all about the kids. And we'll have three amazing guests who'll be talking with us about how they help every child to reach their potential in the best possible learning environment. But you know, we always start our show with a change the world moment. Tell them all about it, Thomas. Hello and welcome to this edition of our Change the World moment. And this time we're going all the way to Haiti. I have James DeCluse, and if I say that wrong, you correct me. Uh, in Haiti, what city are you in? I am actually in Lekai. And that's south of Haiti? Yes, in the south of Haiti. But I am from Hinge, the central plateau, center of Haiti. Okay, so we're going to ask all of our viewers to get their, their uh, geography books out and, and maps out so they can find out exactly where you are. So your change the world moment is different than some of the ones we've had in the past. You have an education. And you've come up with an idea to help people get the internet. After finishing my secondary school in Hinge, I decided to go to study computer science. In 2017, I made a quick survey and I surveyed about 300 kids. I realized 98% of those kids didn't see and didn't know about computers. And I say, ah, there is a huge problem that need to be addressed. And in 2017, I met a young American, Brian Murray. Brian shares the same idea with me to bring computer literacy and information literacy to rural kids in, in Haiti. Yes. At that moment, Brian and I, we put ourselves together and we come with this project, the Crack Computer Project. Okay, so now that project is a project that means that you and your partner were able to bring computers to children. Yes. So through your education and your ideas, you were able to do that. There's no electricity in Haiti? Yeah, yeah, you are right. <laughs> There is no electricity in Haiti. Like in rural areas, there is no electricity. Yes. So um, you can you can just you can just imagine it. If there is no electricity, that means there is no access to a lot of technologies. Right. You 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 get the print. There is no access to internet. Yes. Okay. So we decided to design this model. So you have a mobile computer lab. Exactly. And so do you have solar energy or how do you get the energy to run the computers? Yes, to do this, we engage the community leaders, yes. like school directors. And in some schools, they plan and they help us with generators. Yes. Yeah, and by ourselves, we, we, we help input gas to power the generator. 
That is great. That is great. And that's why you are making a change the world moment because you're going all around Haiti to try to make sure that all of the children have access to computer skills, computer knowledge, and they're computer literate. So of, go ahead. Of course, this is what, why I am now at Change the World. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on Change the World. And I think what you're doing is great. I hope that other small uh, Caribbean or Caribbean villages or, or, or communities come up with the same idea because I think that this is way that we can work together to make it better for the whole world. And now to our special guest. Today's episode is all about the kids. It's all about the children and how we can ensure that they have every opportunity to reach their goals and their potential in the best possible learning environments. Wanna just be honest with you about how I feel about public education. We've talked a lot these days since COVID about all of the impact that COVID has had on children and the learning gaps. But let's just be honest and say, public school was never designed for equity. You can't build a system on tax basis where there are haves and have nots and think you're gonna have equity. But today's guests, our amazing guests today, have been working on equity long before COVID, long before we really talked about No Child Left Behind or Now Every Student Succeeds. They've been working to make sure that every child reaches their potential in the best possible learning environment. So today we are joined by my dear friend, Brandon Brown. We first met when he was with the Mayor's Office of Innovation. Um, working on policy and bringing outstanding schools to students and families in Indianapolis. My friend and mentor, Anna Schultz, who has an amazing story and started her own school where she is doing great things for kids every day. And my dear friend, although we're in Indianapolis and she is um, one of those New Orleans Saints fans, Jennifer Page Pearson, who is in the Rock Island Milan School District, where there are over 30 languages spoken and children with vast needs um, that they have been addressing for, I can't even tell you how much time. So Brandon, if you'll tell us a little bit about your story and the great things happening at the Mind Trust. I began my career as a ninth and 10th grade English teacher and realized that the kids that I was teaching uh, were brilliant and you know just had just had unbelievable worth and um they were operating within a system that frankly wasn't created for them and uh you know it just really made me frustrated as a classroom teacher that i had these walls in my classroom and you know had the ability to control what happened within those four walls but didn't really have the ability you know to confront the system uh so i was uh really excited you know to think about how could i expand my own impact um, and where we are at the Mind Trust now. So we were originally founded in 2006 with a mission to ensure that all kids in our city have access to a great school. Uh, so I actually joined uh, in 2015, um, and I am just so proud of the journey that our organization has been on. Um, and I think a lot of the shifts that we're seeing right now in the system, um, while not perfect, are you know just making, I think, quantifiable progress every single year to you know really ensure that more kids have access to a great school and we believe that there are three conditions at the school level that will give a school the maximum chance of success one is a great school leader 
Two is the autonomy for that school leader and her team to make decisions as close to kids as possible. And then three, rigorous accountability. Mm. And we believe that those three conditions need to be present for schools to really show uh, the tremendous progress that um, we should really expect at the school level. So, you know, our role at the Mind Trust is, you know, to figure out how do we create an education system that is more equitable, more just, and is created for the kids that it should be created for. And then, you know, what do we do to make sure that we are working with amazing school leaders across the system? One, to open up new schools, two, to support existing schools, and then three, what's it look like to, you know, really engage the community in a comprehensive conversation around what's possible for kids and what is it going to take to move the education system, uh, you know, more towards one that is just and equitable and truly high performing for all kids in our city? That sounds like a lot. Um, so create like, you know, everyone is concerned about do we have too many charter schools? You know, how do we make sure these schools are really good schools? You said you're all about quality schools. How do you know these are quality schools? Great question. You know, I oftentimes, you know, hear this notion that we don't need new schools for kids. And the reality is that we're not at a saturation point of great schools. So, so until every single kid in our community has access to a high quality school, we can't be satisfied because the system is not going to change on its own. The system needs to be pushed and prodded to make the transformations that we really need to see in our community. So, you know, I'm not somebody who gets really fixated on school type. I think we have a lot of conversations that are more about adults and not really about kids. What I want to see is more schools that are doing an outstanding job for kids. And what we've seen in our community is that schools that have great leaders and have contractual autonomy are the schools that are really making the most strides. So we feel like there's a moral imperative that there are more schools with those conditions. We also believe that because of systemic racism, we have to confront the hard truths and we have to have the uncomfortable conversations. And the reality is that we can't believe that systemic racism exists and then exempt the entire K-12 education system from the interrogation that we need to see. And you know what that means, right, is that there's going to be uncomfortable conversations and it means that um, the system that was created can't be the system that continues to exist long-term for kids. And just like we want to interrogate all the other systems, that same level of effort uh, needs to happen for the K-12 system too. You know, Anna, I feel like that was a great intro for you <laughs> because you are an amazing um, school leader. You know, I've been in your school. Um, I've seen how you uh, support your staff and your kiddos and your high expectations. So, um, you know, what would you share with us about your journey and ACE prep and the things that you're um, trying to do um, for kiddos in your school and in our community? Well, thank you. Good morning, everybody. To the other panelists, it's nice to e meet you. And Brandon, you and I are in the same city, and this maybe is the closest we've ever we've ever been together. So it's nice to see you. Um, I echo everything that uh, Mr. Brown has shared, and would just say really humbly and really transparently, um, I'm figuring it out one day at a time, and definitely don't profess to have all the answers, uh, and definitely don't profess to have it all together. But I can stand true on a couple hard truths. 
And that is regardless of a zip code, every scholar within our community, within our city, within the state, within the country, wherever, right, within the world is entitled to an awesome education. And it is really humbling to be able to pull into this parking lot every day and to do the work that needs to be done on behalf of our scholars and families. So my story is a little bit different. I um, have always wanted to be a teacher. I was playing school in my basement when I was three and four. I knew that's what I wanted to do. When I got married, I invited all of my elementary teachers to my wedding. They are rock stars in every way. And I've always believed that. Um, I specifically went to a college where they could guarantee that as soon as I declared education, I would be able to be in the classroom. And so I did that my freshman year of college um, and had an opportunity then to do my student teaching at an up and coming school district at the time. Um, sorry, I'm in a classroom and not moving. So the lights just went off. Uh, I hope that didn't affect anything, but had an opportunity to do my student teaching in an up and coming school district at the time in Fishers, Indiana. And the second I walked in there, to be very blunt with you, I knew uh, it was a damn good job, uh, but I also knew it felt uncomfortable in every way. And I didn't know what to do about it because the school district has a reputation of you're here, you've quote unquote made it. And it's not a stepping stone onto something else. Um, and several years into my career, I was named Indiana's Teacher of the Year. And with that comes a mandatory sabbatical out of your classroom. And so that year we had over 200 school districts in the state, plus all the charters. And my job was to be in every district in the state. Wow. And I spent the year quickly realizing that uh, it wasn't a disjointed superintendent that should have retired a long time ago or a principal or a school leader that maybe sat in their office all day long and didn't interact in the way that those of us on the call may deem um, appropriate or the right ways to interact with scholars. But it was my peers, it was classroom teachers that were putting the bar so low for those in their classroom because of how they looked or because of how they didn't look or because of a zip code. And it just ticked me off. Um, and I returned to my classroom the following year and I went in in the summer to set up my classroom and there were two PTO moms that were planting flower pots at the front of the school, as one would do to start to welcome the school community back. And I remember it was a windy day. The receipt blew away. I went and I grabbed the receipt and I had this continued conversation with these women and looked at the receipt and they had spent over $500 on flowers and dirts and pots. Wow. And I was mortified, mortified. And so that year I committed to my scholars and I um, was there uh, knowing it was the right thing to do, but trying to figure out the next step. Uh, and fast forward several years, I worked at our Department of Education. I spent a year and a half with the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And so I got out of my classroom and did some state level and some national level ed work. And I realized that my definition of impact used to be tied to um, being further away from scholars. In other words, I'm going to have a really big impact if I'm working at the state. Look at all the scholars in the state. I'm going to have a great impact if I'm working at a national level. Look at all those teachers we could impact. And I quickly realized, A, that wasn't me, and B, that um, wasn't what I believed. So I returned to Indianapolis and just dug my heels in and decided if I could find a team of rock stars with a like-minded mission and vision who believe that all scholars are gonna grow up and make history, 
that like, with all due respect to everybody else, kind of get out of our way and we're going to get this done. So we um, went through our authorization in May of 2015. We opened the following year uh, in 2016, 2017. And Ace Prep in Indianapolis, I think, has always been a, we fly underneath the radar. We're a small charter, public charter school in the city. But we had big plans year one uh, to welcome about 140-ish scholars. And on the first day of school, we welcomed eight out of 140. And so uh, the pressure that we felt from people outside of the ACE prep community was very black and white in terms of you have to make hard decisions. This is the time to close. Why are you going to stick it out? And for those of us inside the ACE prep community, it never occurred to us to close. And my mentality quickly changed to, what if the state of Indiana said that I could have a school and we only had eight kids? Like, look how awesome we could be and look at all the things we could do. And like, shame on us if we don't get this right. Uh, and that first year we quadrupled our population, which is a great headline, but still only ended with 32. And uh, two and a half times our population uh, the second year and have just been growing very steadily since. Last year was the first year that we were at full capacity with grades K through five. And um, it just, as I said at the beginning, just brings me an incredible amount of joy and humility to be able to support and uplift a team. Um, I actually just finished reconfiguring our org chart over the weekend and finally are at a place, Dr. Banks, where we can add some leadership uh, roles to our staff. I know, which is exciting. But um, at the top is our mission and vision, and then our board of directors, and then the team, and I'm at the bottom, and I'm purposely at the bottom, um, because my job is to um, empower and support and uplift and mold and to shape and guide and to coach and all those things. And I've tried to not make ACE Prep synonymous with me, but instead the culture, the vibe, the scholars, the community that we've worked really hard to build. So you're always welcome here, always welcome. You know, um, I've been in your school. There are always great vibes, just um, amazing mm -hmm. vibes from the be very beginning. Um, and, you know, Brandon made a reference to good school leaders, right, um, mm -hmm. as the bottom line. And as I listen to you talk about you being at the bottom, um, how do you see the role of a good school leader, right? If you could get together with the school leaders or potential school leaders, you know, and give some of that, um, you've learned it advice. What's the good mm -hmm. school leader sort of secret potion, if you will? Well, that's a great question, but I wrote down um, something the other day as I was participating in um, some professional development. And the line that struck me the most was, if I'm not living it, then I can't lead it. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about goals that we have either for our staff, for our scholars, for the community. And I think if the school leader is somebody that remains in their office all day and is not um, walking the walk, uh, that's a problem. And um, my team has not been asked to do anything that they don't see me doing myself. I've never missed a day of work. I do not take any phone calls during the day from anybody outside of the ACE prep community. I do not take any meetings during the day from anybody outside our community. Um, when scholars and adults are in the building, my priority is with scholars and adults. So I teach every single day, uh, always take the lowest readers, 
highest math achievers, the ones that were trying to crack why they don't know CBC words in year three, whatever the case may be, right? That mm -hmm. I think our responsibility is to always stay connected to the work and to be in the trenches as well. Now, maybe that's because at the end of the day, I identify myself as a teacher um, and there's nothing that brings me more joy than still being able to say that. Um, and then I also think you have to have the courage, as Brandon was saying, to make really hard decisions and to tackle really hard conversations and do that with the ability to be still and listen. At the same time, you have to realize it's also full speed ahead um, because these scholars only have 180 or uh, we have 184 days with us. And um, it's not cool for us to waste any of those minutes, right? Mm. Yeah, well, I know you like um, uh, people oftentimes say they wish they had more hours in the day. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. I think if you had more hours in the day, you would find more cool stuff to, to do with Probably. that day. Probably, wouldn't we all? Yeah. <laughs> no wasted time. Um, so, Jennifer, as I listen to Brandon um, and um, to Anna, um, you lead a team in your school district. Uh, and... As Anna said, you can't, if you're not living it, I love that phrase. Like if you're not living it, you know, mm -hmm. what can you do with it, right? Um, yeah. And being a part of it and immersed in it and all of the challenges. Um, and you know, you and I spent, what, six years together in um, Rock Island, uh, languages and cultures and socioeconomics and all kinds of challenges. Um, but Rock Island has developed an amazing team. So tell us a little bit about your story, your journey, um, and the great things that the Rock Island CQ team is doing. Hey, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me today. I really appreciate it because uh, education is very near and dear to my heart. I've been in education for 30 years. I spent the first 10 years as an English teacher. And throughout that time, um, I just interacting with the students and everything, you know, um, seeing the challenges that they had in learning. And I began to just uh, reflect what is going on that the students are not learning? What are the barriers? What are the barriers that they're not learning? Trying to dig deep into uh, working through the barriers and then assisting them uh, with the academics because we all know if that social emotional part is not addressed, then those barriers will, um, they will impact education or the student's education. So I decided that I wanted to be a counselor because I, I thought that the most impactful way that I can assist students is to help them to, to work through those social emotional issues and uh, work through those barriers because Realistically, we know that barriers exist. We cannot tear them down, but we can equip students to work through those barriers. So I decided to uh, become a counselor. And I decided that the school that I'm currently employed is the school that I wanted to plant myself. When I met Dr. Banks uh, and we started on the CQ work, I told her that this is the school that I choose to be this is the school that I want to be because these are the students that I want to work with. And um, as we were, as I'm working through trying to work with students, uh, helping to um, meet their social emotional needs, uh, was introduced to Dr. Banks in the cultural competence work that she had begun doing at this, at the, in our district. So um, as Dr. Banks was transitioning out, she developed a team 
and she put us through some very stringent training and um, she she equipped us with a dynamic foundation. So what our team does is we go out and work with the district leaders and we work with them in four focus areas to look at the inequities. When I first started, I called them barriers. Now I'm calling them inequities because these barriers are inequities for our students. And we work in four focus areas of student performance gaps. What do you see, which subgroups of students are having the harder times uh, performing academically? And what are the challenges? Uh, what are some strategies and interventions that we can put in place in order to ensure that they have an equitable opportunity to uh, be successful academically? And then we work with instructional practice, uh, looking at three prongs of uh, the classroom. And we provide resources and training for teachers uh, what does your physical environment look like? Is it welcoming for all students? Every single student feels comfortable and safe in your uh, learn in their learning environment. And we work um, another prong of the instructional practice is the relationships, which is the most important through all of the work that we're doing, building those uh, safe, healthy, respectful relationships. And then, are you challenging each student academically? Do you um, take into consideration the student's culture and everything, and are you providing that education that illustrates that you feel that every single student in your classroom has the capability and has the ability to learn? And then we also look at family engagement because we know those partnerships are important. Um, I strongly believe that it takes a village. So we look at those partnerships that we have with families and we look at those partnerships that we have uh, with our community leaders, because all of us are the ones who are making impact on our students. Some of our school have, schools have lead programs where they bring in community leaders and show students, give students a reason for wanting to excel academically because they can see life after high school, these doors or these opportunities are there for me. And along with, um, family engagement, student performance gaps, and instructional practice, we also have uh, school organizational culture. Have you provided a welcoming environment for all of your stakeholders? Um, what do your discipline systems look like when you're talking attendance, when you're talking discipline, when you're talking any types of systems? Is there an equitable approach to how um, we are working with students. Are we more punitive? Are we more restorative? So we look at all of that and we go out and we work with the leaders on all of that. We have been working, as Dr. Banks said, we've been working on our cultural competence journey for six years now. And we leveled up a little bit and we brought in implicit bias. So we are working with um, team leaders uh, and staff, our entire school board, our entire um, uh, district administrative team, all of our school leaders and our staff are embarking on implicit bias uh, sessions, ways to mitigate implicit bias. Uh, you know, taking some reflection time and knowing that our own biases um, do play a part in uh, the inequities that our students face. So with the cultural competence work, 
that self-reflection was all there was already there because you know when you look at the iceberg the above the surface and then the below the surface what are some of the things that are below the surface that we have ourselves that may be hindering our relationships with our students or impacting our relationships with our students and uh, so with the cultural competence work and the implicit bias work, working with our leaders to make sure that we are better equipped to meet the needs of our students in the most equitable ways possible. And um, this year we're, we're looking into cultural humility as well. So all of this, that relationship building piece is that foundation and looking at how our um, our own self-awareness will impact students in those areas of perform student performance. What are our expectations, our instructional practice, our family, uh, our relationships with our families and the community, and our our um, our structures. Uh, what are the inequities in our structures? So all of that uh, we're working with, and and that gave me a renewed sense of working in education because again i chose to plant myself at the one school that i've been working with for 30 years i've had other opportunities but that is the one school that i want to be at because those are the students that i want to ensure that they are given an equitable opportunity for success so jennifer um, and Thomas, uh, you know, feel free to jump in if you have questions, but um, there are so many districts. Uh, and as Brandon talked about, people are looking for ways to make impact, right? Um, and I love the way you're using the word we, right? It's all about your internal work in the district. And so many schools and districts struggle with how do they create that we. So it's your team bringing these things to your leaders and working through these things in your school district. Um, not that you don't use some external supports, but what advice might you give to schools or districts that are trying to create that internal we kind of system? We, you have to have that mindset. It's all about we. If I fail, you fail. If our students fail, we fail because that's what we're here for. We're here to educate our students. So it's we. I've always done the team approach, the we, the our, because when you look at it, and, and it may be cliche, but when you have a chain, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So that we mentality is so important. First of all, you have to have that belief that is this all of us. We are in this thing together. And it's not about critiquing or criticizing um, that one person who may have, you know, stepped outside of, of the culture that we're trying to build, the equity process or what have you. But it's it's all about um you know, edu educating and nurturing and um, the realization piece and, and helping everyone to understand that we are in this together. And if one facet of this is not working, it's going to be a difficult journey uh, to, make, to make it successful for all students. How can we come together to figure out a way that's gonna, you know, take, take the best of everything that each one of you all do to come up with a, a, a newer model of education and moving forward? Great question. You know, I think that one way to think about this, right, is to align on what are the outcomes that we're all 
working towards and, you know, kind of what do we expect of the education system, regardless of, you know, if you're in a charter school, if you're in a school district, you know, kind of whatever the school type is, right? What is the common vision and, you know, common set of outcomes that we can all align on and, you know, really all agree to? And then, you know, figure out, all right, so what are the roles and responsibilities, you know, of everybody kind of within a system and how can we one work together and then two, you know, how can we each hold each other accountable to making real quantifiable progress towards that shared vision. And I think oftentimes in education, we think more about the inputs and, um, you know, more about school type and, you know, more about the things that we are not aligned on and less about, you know, what is it that we're actually working towards. And in my experience, folks that think that they're misaligned actually have more in common than what we want to assume about each other. And I would, you know, love to think about what are those commonalities? What can we agree to in terms of, you know, what we should work towards for kids? And then, you know, how do we work together to really make that happen? So your summer project um, with the Mind Trust and um, with the United Way, that's one of those come together kind of things. Like, um, what can you share with us? Because we want to make help people make change, right? Um, to Thomas's point, how do we get people to come together, right? How do we get people to come to Anna's school and help do the things that Anna needs, right? Um, that kids need at Anna's school or schools throughout the city, right? How do we... Um, bring those people or systems together. Great point. You know, I think if if we've learned anything in the last 12 to 15 months, it's that COVID has had severe and direct impacts on communities that were already marginalized. Yeah. And it can't just be on schools to tackle all of these inequities on their own. It actually has to be a community-wide effort. And you know, if you would have asked me a year ago, would the Mind Trust be working with United Way to launch a comprehensive summer school initiative? I would have said, hell no, that is, you know, not the role of the Mind Trust. That's not what we should be doing. But we've really, you know, had to ask ourselves, you know, what are the needs of our community? What are we hearing from schools and nonprofit organizations and families and children? And then, you know, how can we use whatever influence we have to bring people together to work towards a common goal? And, you know, one great thing about Indianapolis is that folks know how to come together to achieve big things. And I think that's, you know, kind of really the ethos of the city that we're in. So, you know, I think moving forward, one thing that the Mind Trust has to do is, you know, seek out meaningful community partnerships um, and bring people together to really tackle structural issues. You know, again, we knew that massive inequities existed a year and a half ago. Those inequities have only been exacerbated now, and schools can't be on an island um, thinking that you know all of this is only their responsibility. Our community has to step up to figure out what are the ways in which we can work together, you know, to all make meaningful, quantifiable, real progress towards the goals that you know hopefully we all you know really agree um, are very, very you know critical for the community to accomplish. So. I have learned a lot the last year around what it means to establish um, real authentic community partnerships. And you know, I'm convinced more than ever that 
we can achieve the outcomes that we want for our kids just by looking at the K-12 system because the K-12 system operates within multitudes of systems. Most mm -hmm. of those systems are inequitable for our kids. And if we're not acknowledging that on the front end, then we're never gonna make the long-term outcomes that we desire for our children. Dr. Banks, can I add something to that? Oh, please do, please do. So one of the things I loved about what Brandon just shared is, is he's thinking about community, especially from a leadership perspective at the citywide level. Um, this realization that schools, while we play an imperative part, we're a part of that pie, right? We're not the whole pie. Right. And one of the things that um, has surprised me about the role and the work that I'm doing right now is that I think a lot of times those of us that are directly in the trenches of the school day in and day out overlook the community of our parents and families or take for granted the impact and the power that the parents and families have to help do those things that Brandon was defining as well. So I have complete faith and trust in external organizations, be it the Mind Trust or the United Way, um, and my ability to move some of those levers outside of you know, those four walls that he was talking about of our school, um, take a different type of talent and capacity or energy that isn't always my focus day to day, right? But what is the focus every day is working on structures and systems, as he was saying, to really fortify the school community inside and realizing that as soon as your parents and families feel valued and heard and that they think that, um, you know, my, I, I once had a, a teacher tell me that as long as, uh, this is when I was uh, in college, but as long as every parent feels like their kid is your favorite, then you will be fine, right? And just the sense of that you are advocating for their scholar in a way that aligns with who they want their scholar to be. And so I would say in the last couple of years, we have really upped our game at being intentional about unintentionally, about not, I guess, not unintentionally overlooking the parents that we have and the resources that they bring to the table. And I bet, Jennifer, you see that in your engagement work throughout the district too. But um, I would just kind of throw that on the table as my own transparency saying at the beginning of all this, I just thought my role was to greet them every day, right? And to make sure we're communicating with them and to make sure that we're upholding their scholars' health and safety and all those good things that a school is supposed to do. But it wasn't until really a couple years ago that we started to put together a comprehensive effort for what family and parent engagement should look like in order to do some of those things that Brandon is describing um, on an external level and really tried to hone in on it here. I mean, we're not perfect at it yet, but I can see the difference that it has made in just a short amount of time. Yeah. So, so Jennifer, I was going to say you want to speak because you talked about family and community engagement as a part right. of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, and our family and community engagement through our CQ work, we've actually, uh, our district has actually developed a family engagement team where we have a team on the district level. And then within each school, there is a team. So like we have a district leadership team and then we have building leadership teams uh, that align their goals. We actually have a family engagement team and then the schools with their family engagement with their, those sub teams and they align. 
And it's all about educating and empowering parents to be able to help their children. What are the, what, when you come to uh, family, uh, when you come to parent teacher conferences, first of all, let's empower you to get out and go to the conferences, every opportunity that you have to engage with educators about your children, uh, let's equip you, let's empower you. When your child brings home a report card, exactly what does that report card mean? What is it saying so that you can understand exactly what uh, what the schools are saying your child is accomplishing? So we have that family engagement team. And through that family engagement team, that is how we're able to draw many of our community partnerships. And as Brandon was saying, through COVID, um, you know, these community partnerships are out there and they're ready and they're willing. And I was just so amazed how our uh, our district is uh, over 60 percent low income. Um, and it just amazed me how um, our Internet, we have three local Internet companies and they were willing to provide hotspots for our students throughout the community so that every single student can have access to internet capability during this remote learning process. Uh, United Way, um, Brandon mentioned United Way, They're, United Way in the Quad Cities has partnered uh, with the schools and the communities. Uh, they had this major forum where they brought all the stakeholders together, even parents, and talked about what can we do to make sure our children are successful and as a result of that, they aligned with the school systems and came up with um, three major goals that would help our students uh, to help show that this is a community, family, and school partnership. And their major goals are to, by 2030, to ensure that a certain percentage of students um, have access to adequate health care, to make sure that a certain percentage of students are able to find jobs when they graduate from school. And most of all, to make sure that students have the capacity and, and the resources they need to actually graduate. So the community has shown, uh, and, and again, it was there. I think we're the ones had to realize that we needed to reach out and take advantage of these resources that they're giving us. So, we have that partnership with our communities and through our family engagement team working with Scholastic, uh, again, empowering our parents to, to be those partners, that to be that strong part of that partnership. And when I say we, our parents, our community, our schools, we're all a part of that we in order to uh, just ensure that we're giving our students the best opportunity for success. So I oftentimes say when I'm working with schools that um, this is our best chance, COVID um, and some of the racial unrest and issues that we've had in our community and our nation have given us the best chance I think we've ever had to systemically change um, how we deliver public education. And, you know, talking about the community partnerships and relationships, if you each had one ask. I would ask that they are open and honest about um, the inequities that our students face and to be open and willing to accept that these inequities exist, to work toward uh, making more equitable systems. Because I think if we 
do not acknowledge that it is happening. We could have the community partnerships. We could have the family partnerships. Uh, we could have it all. But until we accept and address these inequities, then a lot of our work will seem daunting. So that will be my one big ask that let's just, you know, it's one of those keep it simple type, type things, you know, um, recognize it, accept it, and address it. One thing that I have um, really learned over the past year, and in particular, is that our education system doesn't ask families what they want to see in a high quality school, right? So we have a system that is very, very antiquated, has looked the same for decades. And the reality is that we're in a 21st century world and every other sector has, you know, transitioned to the current day and, you know, always has to change and adapt or it's literally no longer going to exist. The education system, right? Um, because the way that it was created is calcified and it has a hard time shifting to meet real demand from families um, and really does, doesn't have an incentive to change. And one thing that I've learned during COVID is that if you would have asked me 15 months ago if the Mind Trust would ever support a new virtual school, mm. I would have said no. The reality is that a segment of families have enjoyed having the virtual school option and are telling us loud and clear that they want it to continue. I might disagree with that. You know, I might not want my kids in a virtual setting, but the reality is that 15, 20, 25% of our families are loud and clear right now that they want there to be a virtual option. So the question is, what are we gonna do to meet that family demand and to shift our education system to be consistent with what our families and children are telling us? And that means, right, that we need to provide, in my opinion, high quality virtual options for kids. And they need to be as high quality as what, what we would expect in a you know, more traditional school setting. Uh, you know, it, and, and at the Mind Trust, we've actually made investments in two new, hopefully high quality virtual school options, not because we love virtual school, but because we have a moral imperative to listen to our families and to make sure that we're adapting to meet their needs. And I often feel like we listen to families that are historically privileged, right? White families, families that have economic privilege, they get what they want. We need to take that same approach to marginalized families who, who historically have been cut out of every single decision-making process. And we need to seek out those families and authentically say, what do you want for your kids? And how as system leaders can we, can we be responsive to your desires? Just like we're responsive to families that have privilege. And I think if there's anything that we've learned the last 12 or 15 months, it's that the education system is not responsive to the families that are most marginalized in our community. And those are the families that we should be the most responsive to. So, you know, hopefully moving forward, our education system can shift more nimbly, can, you know, ask what do our families want and can actually come up with tangible ways to serve our families in the ways that they're asking to be served. Because if not, what we're going to see is we're going to see declining enrollments in our school system, and we're going to see families choosing other options, homeschool or private school, et cetera. We're already seeing these enrollment trends. And if our traditional system is not responsive, they're going to continue over time. I was going to say that there isn't a one-size-fits-all model, right? 
And I think the ask is for everybody, uh, everybody has their, a school experience and then thinks they know school because they have all been a student, right? Yeah. And so there is this mentality of, well, this is how it worked for me and this is how it always has to be. And COVID um, has been a blessing in disguise, I think, when it comes to the educational sector for the ways that you all met, um, discussed. And the ask is in part one, um, school districts, the systems, building leaders need to have the courage to be able to speak up and say what we used to do last year in August or what we used to do, whatever, pre-COVID days isn't going to work anymore. The data doesn't point in that direction. Um, and, you know, we can't continue to turn a blind eye to, to what we've known, but haven't had the ability to change. Um, and so I, I just would empower and challenge everybody that has a voice within the education community, which really is everybody. I mean, everybody in the community, whether it's a church leader, uh, somebody that works at a, you know, the local grocery store, a bank, whatever is happening within the community, they all have a voice and a say in what goes on in those schools. And so for people within the community, I would challenge them to get in schools uh, once COVID restrictions lift, right? But just... You know, I mean, I was speaking with somebody the other day who has a, a charter school and had 11 people on their board of directors and was saying that only one person out of the 11 in the last three years has come and visited the school. And I thought, if that's how it is on a board, then like, how am I expecting that anybody else from within the community? Um, so concisely, Dr. Banks, I would say uh, one ask would be um, for school leaders and for those within the educational system to be able to step up uh, and do what we know needs to be done on behalf of kids when it comes to taking the time to really analyze and think through what COVID has taught us and be willing to make some really hard decisions and use, for lack of a better term, maybe COVID as an excuse to do some of these things that we know we've had to do for a long time. And now it's like, well, you know what? The old way didn't work. And it can't work. Look at these gaps that we have and um, just be willing to address those in ways that are full speed ahead for everybody involved. So we always get to this point where I could talk to you all all day long, um, but you all have great things to accomplish for the rest of the day. And so um, I ask each person to give your parting thought. Remember, we're trying to help Jamise Banks change the world. So what's one thing you would ask for, or one thing you would suggest, or one thing you would say? Because to Anna's point of, we all are a part of the school community. Whether we have children in the school or not, whether we work at the bank or whatever it is that we do. So what can each individual person, what can Jamise do or the person on the street do? What um, to help change what would make things better for your kiddos, your systems, and your programs? So I would ask anybody who's listening to this, do you know the names of the people that are on your school board? I would venture to say that there's a pretty good chance you can't name any or maybe a couple. And the reality is that that's where, you know, system level decisions get made in terms of schooling in our communities. And I think that families and students and community members ought to cause a ruckus and ought to be extremely engaged 
with their school board ought to come to meetings and ought to demand a quality education for their children. And if that doesn't work, then I would encourage you to run for school board yourself. These are low turnout elections. These get uh, very little attention, but the reality is that schooling is local. And these elections have so much of an ability to transform an education system, but they get so little attention from the public. So I would just encourage you, one, to get engaged with what's happening in your school district at the school board level. And if that doesn't get the results that you want, I would encourage you to run for school board. All right. Yeah, and I would encourage you to get in the school. <laughs> I mean, you know, so if we're talking to members of the local community, Dr. Banks, too, I would say, um, you know, they should call the school that they pass on their way to the grocery store every day, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Offer a kind notion to the teachers or to the work that's being done. Say, you know, I am a welder and this is my job and this is what I was like when I was in school. Are there scholars there that remind you of me and how can I get involved? Just, you know, I think we lose sight of how important that relationship piece is and um, within the four walls of our school, there might not be, no matter how hard we try, the right adult co to connect with that scholar in the way that that scholar needs, but within the community, there certainly is, right? And so um, I think the, the community would be welcomed with open arms to just reach out to a school and, you know, offer a kind word and a way to support the work that's happening in that school or learn more about the work that's happening in the school. And, um, you know, after all, like, you know, these schools are neighborhood schools. We're building a legacy school here that has nothing to do with the people that started it, but everything to do with the people that are in it. All right. And Jennifer? Yes, I would encourage uh, my, my uh, parting words would be to our parents. I would ask our parents to empower themselves to have a, a strong, active voice in their child's education. Um, many times we might assume that the um, educators are the ones who know everything that the child needs, and that's not the case. So get out there, use your voice. Um, students, use your voice. Uh, make this a true partnership in uh, deciding what is the best and most equitable education for each and every child. So parents get out there, use your voice, students use your voice and make it a true partnership in educating the whole child. I want to thank you all for being with us today. Your uh, parting comments remind me of one of my favorite educators who we lost. That is Rita Pearson, who always said that every child deserves to have a champion, and that champion isn't necessarily, as you all pointed out, in a classroom. Um, so whatever it is that each of us can do, stopping by our school, making sure we know our school board people and what's happening, um, helping parents to understand how to advocate for their kids, let's all do that. So thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you so much. Have a great day and please continue to do the fabulous things you do for our kids and our community. So Thomas, we've got our charge. What are you going to do to change things in education? Well, you know, I think that this was one of the best shows that we have ever had. I appreciate the fact that we had three individuals that come from different backgrounds and different approaches, but at the end of the day, they all have one thing in common, and that's helping our children. So I'm going to take a little bit of a uh, snippet from each one of them so I can help you change the world. Looking forward to, Thomas, what comes next, right? 
We've had several really great episodes with guests that have challenged us in lots of different ways. Next month, you and I will go back and take a look at the best of the best of yes. those episodes, the questions and comments that people have sent us as we prepare for season two of Help Jamise Banks Change the World. So if you're out there and you have comments that you haven't sent us, please make sure as you subscribe to our YouTube channel that you leave us your comments. You can also hit us up with an email. Check that out in the description so that we know what you'd like to see us do to help Jamise Banks change the world. The views and opinions expressed by today's guests do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or the show's producer, Whatever It Takes Consulting Incorporated. You've been listening to Help Jamise Banks Change the World, a podcast produced by Whatever It Takes Consulting Incorporated.